Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Today's guest is James Cham. James is a partner at Bloomberg Beta LP. At the firm, he focuses on investments in data-centric and machine learning-related companies. Previously, he was a principal at Trinity Ventures, where he focused on investments in consumer services, specifically e-commerce, social media, and digital media. James was a vice president at Bessemer Venture Partners, where he focused on advanced web technologies and investments in consumer internet services, security, and digital media sectors, along with a number of seed investments. While with Boston Consulting Group, James developed marketing strategies for entertainment and information technology companies. James received an AB degree in computer science from Harvard University, an MBA from MIT's Sloan School, where he was a Siebel Scholar, and interned at Sun Microsystems. Talking with James is always such a delight. In this episode, we discuss how to think about organizations as technology, Bloomberg Beta's early investments in artificial intelligence, and his views on the best path forward towards AI regulation, or bugs as a public good, as he says. We also talk about the latest developments in large language models and the problem with anthropomorphizing AI. Please enjoy James Cham. James, welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to see you. I want to start at the very beginning, Okay. which is you have shared your very early interest in public radio hmm. and how it sparked a lifelong passion for journalism. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing a bit more about that? You know, when I grew up in Los Angeles, I grew up in a part just east of downtown that was mostly Latino and Asian. And, you know, there's the glamorous part of LA you grew up learning about or hearing about. And then there's the part where they talk about it being rough and tumble. My town was not really totally rough and tumble, but it was not the glamorous part. And the interesting thing for me was probably somewhere around the sixth or seventh grade, I discovered KCRW, which was the local public radio station. And there's something magic about radio in the way that it's able to create an alternate world, right? And that that sense of, oh, there's this bigger world out there than the one that I saw every day, sort of was just critical for my imagination and what I cared about. And then when I went to high school, I had a number of just great friends who were in like the journalism club, where we published a newspaper, which honestly, I think came out monthly. And then also a couple of just really inspiring journalism teachers who deeply cared. And then one of them, Mrs. Lamone, would give me old issues of the New Yorker and the New York Times magazine, right? And that sense of like, wonder and the bigger world was something that sort of excited me and sort of made me interested in journalism and its possibilities for a long time. In fact, you know, I've got a bookshelf over there and, you know, I have a gift, which was Tom Wolfe's The New Journalism, which must be from 19, I probably right around the time I was born, right? You know, like it's like an old book, but like for one of my journalism teachers gave it to me and it made a huge impression. Did you ever dial in to the radio station? There was a talk radio station in LA called KBC 790. 
and there was a late night talk show host, late night, meaning nine to midnight called Ira Fistel. And I did call in once to him. Did you have a specific question or did you, because I remember calling in because they were giving away PlayStation Spice Girls video game. And I was like, I am meant to win this video game. I didn't even have a PlayStation at the time. Yeah. I I think I had a question about an E.M. Forster novel. Of course. I want to say I had a question around Passage to India or something like that. I don't remember what the question was. I don't remember what the answer was. I remember calling to ask. I think Ira Fistel was known for being someone who's supposed to know everything. So, <laughs> And you mentioned a visit to the Bay Area in the fifth grade with your family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was a bit of a change for you. Would you mind sharing a bit more about that? I think my folks had family friends or they had friends up in the Bay Area. And when my dad went to college at San Luis Obispo, he would work in San Francisco during the summers. And so I think for the two of them, and we were relatively young, it was a really romantic trip up the coast to San Francisco. And then for me and my brother, it was sort of this revelation around sort of a bigger world. And I remember pretty vividly, or at least it's the way that I remember the story, you know, sort of, they would say, oh, look over there, there's Apple computer, right? And that sense of, amazement in the sense of, oh, this is where the stuff is happening, sort of probably drove me to want to live in Silicon Valley. I think one of the stories my mom likes to tell is around that time I wrote, you know, you have to write these little things about yourself, you know, like your future you or whatever. And I did, and, I, and this part's like literally true. I wrote that I wanted to be a developer evangelist working for Apple, convincing people to use Apple programming frameworks, you know, and live in Silicon Valley, right? Which is a weird thing for a fifth grader to want. <laughs> it's very specific. Uh, yeah. I think it's because of Guy Kawasaki. There's this right. guy named Guy Kawasaki, right, who wrote about it. I must have read his columns or something. Guy Kawasaki is the chief evangelist of Canva and the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast. He's an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley and an adjunct professor of the University of New South Wales. He was the chief evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. They are the not-for-profit that hosts Wikipedia. Guy is the author of 15 books, including Wise Guy, The Art of the Start 2.0, The Art of Social Media, and Enchantment. You blended your passion for journalism and computer science by getting to Harvard and not just doing a computer science degree, but also working on the Harvard Crimson. How did you balance those two things and why were both of them essential for your evolution? Yeah, I don't think I plan to major or concentrate in CS. I think that part was really unclear, but I did love journalism and I just found it so romantic. I think that summer I read, the summer before college, I read The Best and the Brightest, which is around the Vietnam War conflict and written by David Halberstam, right? And it was one of those cases where I thought, oh, all the really interesting things happen with the journalists or with the <laughs> ones that figure these things out. You know, not totally true, but like definitely it felt that way. And so I knew I wanted to do something like related to the newspaper. I was also really interested in design, right? And so I feel like those pieces were more clear than wanting to major in CS. I didn't really major in CS until my sophomore year. And that was in part because programming is so much fun. I mean, come on, like there's nothing more fun than getting something to actually work, right? That feedback loop. 
you know, you do a problem set, you don't really know if it all works. Or you do like, you write an essay, you don't really know if it's coherent. You don't even know if the professor is going to pay enough attention when they grade it to know if it's coherent. But software, you can see software work, right? So that's amazing to me. After finishing at Harvard, you, in 2013, co-founded Bloomberg Beta. Before we get into the details of Bloomberg Beta and what it does and your journey there, what was the transition like from graduating with a CS degree, having this passion for journalism, and then getting to Bloomberg Beta? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the rough version of it was I wanted to stay in Boston. I both had a bunch of friends in a community that I loved. And then I worked at a couple of different companies. One of the companies of that ultimately got bought, right? Got acquired by a a very good big Japanese corporation. But when you're a software developer, you know, and you get acquired by a big organization, it's kind of terrible, right? And so I escaped and I went to MIT for business school. And, you know, did I go to business school because I really had a strong point of view about what I wanted to do? Not really. But I did know that it was frustrating to me that the business people would say things and I wouldn't know what they were talking about. And, you know, <laughs> there's something that animates me, like part of it is the novelty of the new, but part of it is also just the desire to understand, right? You know? Mm-hmm. And so I love business school. I didn't take economics courses as an undergrad at all. And so I probably took business school a little too seriously in the sense of like, I did all my homework, you know, <laughs> I paid, like I talked to my professors because they were so amazing. I loved them. And then from there, I ended up working at BCG, which Boston Consulting Group, which is a consulting firm, which had an office in LA. And I really liked that work because it was challenging and interesting. And I liked the people around. But a friend of mine got funded by a VC firm in the Bay Area. And he texted me one day and said, hey, you know, like, are you wasting your time shaving basis points out of multi-billion dollar corporations, right? You know, like, this is not interesting. You should talk to this VC firm. And that VC firm was this firm called Bessemer, which is a big firm out here, or just in general, like one of the better run VC firms around. So I got along with one of the partners there and ended up working for him for a number of years. And what was the draw, the magnetic pull into VC when you mm-hmm. felt like you were doing interesting work? Yeah. What were you going to get there that you weren't getting in the consulting work? The fun thing about the consulting work was you, it was like, like interesting and there's a novelty of the new, but there was also a sense that you're just away from the red hot center of where everything was interesting. Mm-hmm. And especially if you care about software or tech more broadly, like the barrier is like the center of everything interesting. And there's that sense of, oh, you're reading about what's happening, but you're not close to it, right? And so you don't really know what's going on. Or you read the article, but of course that article was filtered by some press person who wanted to get some point of view across, you know, and so you just get these, like you get these hints of what was going on. And of course, I really want to know what was actually going on. And then, you know, this, you know, Bessemer and my first boss and venture, David Cowan, they were just so smart and so connected. And they sort of like saw all the pieces. My first week there they sold the company. They were trying to decide whether or not to invest in a company that ultimately was the company that Sam Altman started, right? You know, like they were <laughs> in the middle of everything, right? You know, there's a Wall Street Journal article about like, you know, investing in really, really young entrepreneurs. And David Cowan 
I think was quoted in it talking about, oh, I'm, you know, we realized that this guy who was so brilliant, like he was probably too young to drink. That guy was <laughs> Sam Altman, right? You know, so it's kind of amazing. We've seen Sam Altman in the news recently as he is the creator of ChatGPT. Altman studied computer science at Stanford University for two years before he and two of his classmates dropped out to work full-time on their mobile app, Looped, that shared a user's location with their friends. The founders sold the company for $43 million in 2012. In 2014, at the age of 28, Sam was chosen by Y Combinator founder Paul Graham to succeed him as president of the Startup Accelerator. In 2015, Sam co-founded OpenAI with Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla and SpaceX at the time. Their goal for the not-for-profit artificial intelligence company was to make sure AI doesn't wipe out humans. OpenAI's move to focus on large language models is the best way for the company to reach artificial general intelligence, or AGI, a system that has broad human-level cognitive abilities. Sam recently wrote that OpenAI's mission is to make sure AGI benefits all humanity. From Bessemer, then, you moved to Trinity Ventures and then eventually co-founded Bloomberg Beta. That's right. That's right. And then I think what happened, Bessemer, it was made clear to me that I wouldn't make partner. And then there's a question of, so what do you do now? There's a little bit of this question of, do you try to start something? I sort of made a couple half-hearted, kind of slightly failed attempts to start something. And then the Trinity guys I knew well because we co-invested and they were just such nice and interesting people that sort of I joined them. But then joining one firm to another firm is not always the, that's a different beast entirely. And although they were great folks, I totally admit that like, I never really figured it out, you know? And then at that point, then you start thinking to yourself, how would you do it? How would you run a firm, et cetera, et cetera. And then a friend of mine, Peter Pham, sort of said, oh, you should talk to this guy, Roy Bahat. You talked to him before, but he's likely to start a firm with Bloomberg. And so I talked to him and then there was a, you know, one, I thought it was a terrible idea to do a corporate venture firm, right? You know, like I think in general, they're just really hard to do, but still I was like, Peter's a good friend and I trust him inside met with Roy. And then with Roy, there's like this instant chemistry where like, you know, the two of us just got along. You know what I mean? Like there's like all these rational reasons to do work and there's like all this stuff. And then there's just the romance and the chemistry of it. Right. And when you get along with someone, it just doesn't happen that often. Right. It's not just you get along, but like there's that intellectual like fizziness, right. That's exciting. Right. Intangible. Yeah. Yeah. But that fizziness, that sense of, oh, this is like, we, we could do something interesting. Like, I think that that's something that my wife recognized when I got back. She's like, oh, you know, like, mm-hmm. look so excited, right? And then Roy had to negotiate a bunch of stuff. And I had a whole set of three or four things where like, oh, if you don't do, you know, if you do this, it'll never work, or you've got to do this and this. Mm-hmm. And Roy just being both really trusted by sort of the Bloomberg ecosystem, but also just a good negotiator and ended up, you know, sort of setting up a very, very good structure. And so I was lucky enough to be able to join him. And as you were putting together those initial pieces of Bloomberg Beta, do you remember thinking through, okay, what are the principles of how we're going to go about building this Mm -hmm. and who we want to be, your value set? Was that an important conversation right off the bat or was it an unspoken thing that was happening between yourself, Roy, and Karen? There are a couple of ideas, most of which have not lasted. Probably the only one that's lasted is this idea that our first investment, our, our strategy is around consensus or decision-making is that for the first decision, anyone can say yes, right? The first investment. And then the way we bind it is we bind it by dollar amount. And then for any follow-ons though, you need complete unanimity, Mm. right? 
And I think that part of that comes out of this realization that both at Bessemer and Trinity, the best investments were companies that no one else got, right? That the whole partnership got it. Sometimes there are some really hot deals and they just managed to win it and that's a different sort of game. But for the most interesting ones, they were ones that not everyone really understood, right? Whether it was like Twilio or Shopify. Like I think about the ones that are just incredible returns, right? They were just not totally well understood by the rest of the partnership. And then you have to depend on the vagaries of whether or not a specific partner is convincing that week or the rest of the partnership likes them that week, right? It just feels unfortunate. (laughs) And so that functionality of first, yes, anyone can give, second, yes, everyone has to be on board. What has that forced in the team? What environment has that created that has benefited you? I'll tell you the fear. The fear with something like that is that you end up with a dynamic in which the rest of the partnership doesn't care about other people's investments, right? Or this lack of engagement. And I think that's a real risk. But fortunately, both the nature of the partnership and the culture of the firm is, you know, you'll help anyone's investment because they're all our investment. And so we do, on the one hand, you know, sort of there's, I don't know, Amjad from Repland. If he has an issue, he's going to call Roy. He's not going to call me. Right. But on the other hand, I've got enough visibility and understanding that, you know, if there was something that was relevant, right? Or I saw something that was relevant, I'll be able to like ping him and he won't say who's this random guy. <laughs> and I think like that thing is like less a structural thing and more a cultural thing. And that's partly built on the personalities of especially the three of us, right? Why I feel like none of us are that proprietary about relationships. Right. And so, you know, like Karen will be deep friends with someone for 30 years, and then her willingness to say, sure, talk to James, he'll be able to help you, right? Like, that's special, and that's valuable. Just to rewind us a little bit, for listeners who may not be familiar with Bloomberg Beta, can you describe what it is and what you guys are currently doing? Sure. It's a seed stage firm with Bloomberg as our only investor. The broad mandate is to invest in the future of work. We've had four funds, each one of them spent $75 billion dollars. The thing that I do most of is I'll do developer tools and ML infrastructure and some enterprise software. And, you know, our realization is that the nature of work has changed and will continue to change. And we want to be part of that. But investing in the future of work is not just about investing in, you know, HR related software applications. It's about everything, right? It's about how organizations are put together now. It's around what's the next structure for unions. It's around automation. It's around, you know, sort of low-code applications. And so that's sort of the broad piece. For our team, I feel like Bloomberg has been really good to us and it's been really fruitful. And Bloomberg Beta was really early in investing in AI and tracking the impacts of artificial intelligence well before it became mainstream buzzy. Mm -hmm. And what was the inspiration for that? And how did you stay so close to what was happening in the realm of artificial intelligence, machine learning? Yeah. I think one of the strands is the fact that I could see that big data or what, you know, there are all these investments around things called big data. I could see that that was not working and there had to be something else, but I didn't know what that something else was. (laughs) And then we had had a colleague named Siobhan Zillis who joined from, I guess she had been IBM and then she was at Bloomberg. And she had 
not just the insight, but this deep, deep passion for whatever it is that we call this, right? Whether we call it machine intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence, whatever we call that thing, right? That she she's like, oh, there's something here. And so we put together, you know, some this and that thought pieces around that. And that's part of the reason why Siobhan and Ajay got connected, right? And then we've been lucky enough to work with CDL on some of the AI-related things you guys have been doing. And so that's been great. And I think the interesting thing there is, you know, as it is, what fueled Siobhan's passion for this? I mean, part of it is that she was smart and she saw the trends and decided on the timing, et cetera, et cetera. But some of it is that like she's been thinking about this since high school, right? That she's thought, <laughs> you know, she read Kurzweil's book in high school and she said, this is the future that's going to happen and I want to be part of it. And that sort of authentic, sustained passion, right, is just so valuable. And to be honest, still so rare in the world. And why do you think it's rare? I think it's because we're all so easily distracted. In our heads, we have 50,000 things, like my coffee's cold, you know, <laughs> et, cetera, et cetera. And so we have a world that is designed to distract us and make us think about other things. And so that will or that willingness to focus, I think is it's not really trained, nor is it cultivated, right? You know, you're taught to do, to keep your options open or to learn, right? But not to choose a direction and go down it. And, you know, in some ways, we just hope that we get lucky, like as humanity, we just hope we get lucky enough that a few people are so stubborn that they do that and <laughs> that we all end up benefiting from that. I, you know, there's one observation, which I guess other people had, which I didn't really totally think through, is like, of course, that sort of senile-minded that ability to focus and just care deeply, you do see that cultivated with athletes, right? That Absolutely. Athletes, I think that's probably something that I have consistently, as a nerd, it's something that I've consistently underestimated, right? That I think like there's deep value there that I probably didn't appreciate in my teens, my 20s, my 30s, or, you know, maybe until the 40s where I'm like, oh, you know, actually I see that now. I see the value of that sort of that willingness to see train and just work on something. And train the exact same shot tens of thousands of times. Like Steph Curry is that good because he's done a three-point yeah. shot from every spot on the three-point line. That's right. Tens of thousands of times. And he's willing to put in that time. That's and right. So how does that type of propensity to train and openness to practice a skill, how does that translate to the world of VC where you've likely seen now tens of thousands of pitches and slide yeah. decks and met yeah. founders and I'm wondering how your background or passion for journalism and storytelling has also given you an appetite yeah. for listening to these stories and understanding them. How has that played out for you? I mean, I think the danger of seeing a lot of pitches is, of course, getting jaded, right? The danger is to say, oh, this is the same or to be dismissive. And I think the nice thing about journalism is that you realize, oh, no, every story is different. And you're just poking to figure out, oh, how's this different? What's interesting? The thing that's no fun is when a founder goes down a talk track and you think to yourself, oh, I see you're going down a talk track. You probably practice this 50 times. And the talk track is their prescribed lecture that they're ready to give you. That's okay. right. That's right. And then, of course, the fun part is when you talk to them and then you either they're able to explain some part of the world that you had not understood, or you see something different. And like, of course, the 
funny thing about venture is you just don't have that much information. So you're constantly figuring out how to find signal for greatness. And we invest so early that so much of this is around understanding the person or making a judgment on a person. And of course, these are dynamic systems. So if I suddenly think that this thing is a, some characteristic is a signal of quality, I think, oh, this makes someone special, then probably other VCs are going to think the same thing. And then entrepreneurs are going to hear, oh, you know what? If you stand up straight, then <laughs> VCs think you're very clever. And then everyone's going to start standing up straight, right? And then it's no longer a signal. And part of what's fun about the job is that that dynamic system constantly changes. So the signal for quality shifts all the time. So yeah. It's almost like a bit of detective work. A little bit. But the other part, of course, is like the bad version of venture is a bunch of like, I don't know, whatever, terrible transactional people who otherwise would have been trading commodities and taking advantage of people. So that's the bad part. And then the good part is, you know, investing in things that are so promising, but also are so high risk that if you did not have faith in them and you did not make that faith tangible with money, then their lives might have been different, right? And so that willingness to like stick your neck out, have and sort of say, oh, I believe in you so much that I'm not just telling you I think you're interesting, but I also I'm gonna give you some money and think I'm gonna make money out of this, right? I feel like that's like a good thing. So and you have a vision of the future and I believe you. That's right. That's right. So this is likely a question you get often, but on the feedback loop around what works and what signals quality and how that is dynamically changing. What would be your best advice to a founder on how to tell their story and how to get their points across, Mm. whether it's how they present it, whether or not they use slides, how they talk about themselves, how they talk about their team. Yeah. What do you think that looks like? There's all the stuff you read on the internet, which is totally right. You know, like there's straightforward things you should or shouldn't do. I think that ability If I were just thinking about the last month of conversations, and I thought about the ones where I thought, oh, they just missed the point, right? You know, sometimes there's this desire to tell every detail of the story. And then you think, oh, they didn't really think this part through. Mm -hmm. Another version of it is one in which it feels like a lecture and you feel like, oh, they're just going to start talking. They're not paying attention to anything you say. Those sorts of tips, I think, are all out there. Like a friend of mine, Sunil from Ubiquity, just wrote this very, very good detailed thing around how people should talk about themselves to their bios and their backgrounds. And so, you know, like all that's out there. So people should read those things and follow the advice. But the other part about it is, of course, that the nice thing for entrepreneurs is that in this world, there are many, many VCs. And so your ability to talk to lots of people and pay attention closely to what works and doesn't work. You can do that now, right? That you can Mm -hmm. actually, if you're not paying attention to the feedback loop or, you know, admittedly it's hard when you're talking to figure out how people actually feel on Zoom versus, you know, in real life, having someone else on your team paying attention to when people start yawning or when they're paying attention or not attention and just tracking that and then figuring out how to tune yourself, right? I think like that's in some ways why it's easier to raise money now than it's ever been, right? Because you can have lots of at-bats, but only if you start to understand what's working or not working. I guess we went back to like our sports metaphor, right? You know, like that ability to sort of actually see, oh, you bent your elbow too much or, you know, I mean, like all those sort of little details. You can have someone else with you watching you and looking at everyone else, right? And like Real-time game tape review. Right. And the other part is like, you know, your job as an entrepreneur is to both be legible to the VC, but the problem is like, 
the VCs come from all different backgrounds, right? So the things that are going to be legible to me because I have my set of little circles, it'll be different than trying to be legible to some other VC. And that ability to suss that out quickly or guess beforehand, I kind of feel like that's the harder part. How do I prepare the pitch and everything? But there's like the much more, oh, let me look into people's eyes and figure out how should I be talking about myself and what's helpful and not helpful. So that piece I feel like is part of it. And then, you know, everyone wants to be part of greatness, right? And so part of the funny part of the game for the entrepreneur is both to be revealing enough that people want to help you, but also to have such potential that people feel like I cannot help but want to be part of this parade, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just hard to do because of course, you know, you're figuring things out too. So that's part of it. And the last part is like momentum. I mean, I think the thing that everyone knows and not nearly enough people take advantage of is like, you know, momentum matters and that sense of oh, hey, here's the pace of communication or here's like a pattern, you know, all that sort of stuff. Those are all great signals. And those, to be honest, will always be signals of quality, you know, that ability to increase the pace and keep the chat continuing. It's interesting because all of these four pieces that you've gone into, you know, you said there's lots of lists on the internet that are true, but a lot of these are intangibles. A lot of these are people's receptivity to who's on the other side of the table, understanding right. them, paying attention in right. real time and synthesizing that and adjusting and being agile in the moment, as opposed to, you know, an agile schedule for how you're developing your software. Right, it's right, right, right. When you met Roy, you paying attention to, oh, there's something here. That's right. And is it very rare to see founders really get that? And is it typically entrepreneurs or founders that have gone through it a few times that get it? What's that distribution of founders who really understand that? I think it's still pretty rare. And it is hard enough to do, because by the way, you still have to do all the other stuff, right? You still have yeah. to show this is a promising business and that your team is greater. All the other stuff you still have to do, and that stuff is quite hard to do. And then like, in some ways, this is like the game under the game or something like that. So I think it's pretty rare because it's just, all the other stuff is still hard, right? And then it takes enough of your brain to, figure out how to talk about your customer approach or whatever. You mentioned that having the right level of detail is really important. What I've found in working with a lot of technical folks and being a technical person myself is sometimes you feel like I have so much detail here. Yeah. I am about to show you the entire set. Right, right And right. I can't wait to because I've built them all and I've chosen them all myself. Yep. And I cannot wait to show you all the things that this thing can do. And right. in one sense, you think there's a level of excitement and passion on the second hand, it may be, I want to build your trust that I've thought of all the different things that could possibly be thought about. But can you put into words for our listeners and for any entrepreneurs that are listening, why does that actually have a counteracting effect to the person on the other side of the table? Sure. I mean, I think part of it is when we grow up and you do well enough in school, you get assessed based on how well you did your homework and whether you went through all the details. And by the way, when you're working in real life, the details actually matter a lot. But when you're trying to convince someone of something, your actual goal is to convince them not to show all your homework so that you'll get the A, but to show them that you are the kind of person who would do all their homework to get the A. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's like that level of your job is actually very different. So then they have shorthand for saying that we are the kind of person who will do all our homework, right? Whatever you like, I went to the right school or, you know, sort of I know the right people or I worked at the right companies. And those were all signals to say, I am the kind of person who would get an A or I do all my homework to figure out whatever the problem is, or I, you know, write all the SOPs. If you walk me through it in some ways, then that sort of 
distracting and it makes me worry that, oh, maybe you'd be a good individual contributor, but not necessarily the person who will lead a group of people into the promised land. Yeah. It takes away from you communicating a strategic vision. Yeah. Your Twitter bio says you are investing in 2030 and looking for troublesome ringleaders. Can you- okay, so the 2030 part, it was a little project I had in 2022, where I felt like the danger of, well, there are lots of bad things came out of COVID, right? But one thing you'd hate to happen that we had some control over was how we thought about our lives. And you'll always meet the grandma who remembered fleeing her country when she was 18 and putting all the money in the, you know, in her shoes and having to run away. And then for her whole life, that informed how she thought about things. And so she wouldn't put money in the bank or something like that, or or someone who had like some horrible traumatic event in earlier in their life or in their, at some point, and it's like everything was around that. And so I thought, that's not good. So I started asking people, let's instead focus on like sort of a tangible, close enough date, like 2030, right? At that point, eight years from now, but now seven years from now, and say, what will life be like? And there are a whole set of things that we know life will be like for demographic reasons and climate change, like there are a whole set of like big trends you just know are inevitably going to happen. And so if you focus on 2030, then you can both talk about the big trends, but also you can then think, well, what do I want my life to look like? And Mm -hmm. you'll know how many Olympics have happened. You'll know how old you're going to be. You'll know how your kids will be. And if you focus there, then you can make a set of decisions about how I want to orient myself for the next eight or now, but now seven years. And so I went around, asked a bunch of friends and said, yeah, what do you think that's going to look like? And then there's like also excuse to talk about technology as well, right? You know, but that's, like, <laughs> that's what influenced that. And then the troublesome ringleader part was there's like a sort of like a madmanish picture of these very stylish looking guys in black suits. Let's see here. The traitorous eight who left Shockley's semiconductor. And these are the guys who left to start a company, right? To that became basically the heart of Silicon Valley. And, you know, sort of you look at the list of them, it's like Gordon Moore, Robert Noyce. Julius Blank, like all these guys, in some ways, it felt like they betrayed their boss, right? But in other words, they're like, this is bad working conditions. We're going to start our own company. And like those troublesome ringleaders that sort of came out of that. And that's what you're looking for, right? Because you're looking for the people who are going to, you know, be willing to stick their neck out and start the new thing. So that's where it comes And right now, there's a great deal of new technology that is really impacting the way we live our lives. Yeah. Are there areas of that tech that really excite you? And if so, what are they? And then on the other side, folks can feel confused by the variety of ways that we speak about new tech. And right now I'd say it's noisier than ever with Mm -hmm. regards to the expectation of what something like a chat GPT can do Mm -hmm. versus what it can't. And people referring to AI like it's a person, like, oh yeah, AI can do that. Or just, yeah, send AI into that. What on one hand are you really hopeful for? And on the other side of things, is there an aspect of it that you're more cautious around? Okay. I think that a lot of the AI ethics conversations are misguided. I think that they deal with fundamental issues of capitalism and the nature of like people. And in some ways, they're not going to be solved by having slightly different tech policy. So that's one part. At the same time, Ironically, I think the best way to deal with AI ethics is to magnify harms and make visible and legible the harms that you know the tools do. I think that the biggest danger right now is that we rely on a bunch of so-called experts in 
back rooms to make decisions. I think the experts will actually be experts, but the experts will also work for big companies or have other interests. And I think that the critical thing, especially right now, is for the public to see all the bad things that can happen, but also all the good things. And the only mm -hmm. way that happens is you play with it, right? And I think, it, you know, interestingly enough, the autonomous vehicle thing, right? Which is like, I don't know, next time you come to San Francisco, you sit in one of these cars and they really are self-driving. They really go around San Francisco in kind of a slightly terrifying and amazing sort of way. And you know, actually sitting in the car unlocks your head in all sorts of ways. But the interesting thing about it is both, it took longer. It's not like the moment it happened to change the world, but instead there's a whole set of small steps. Any car crash was public, was visible, regulators knew about it, the public could freak out. And so like that visibility and amplification and transparency around harms, I think it's just really important because if you have that, then you can make good decisions around what works and doesn't work. And if you hide it, or if you say that this really can be only judged by statisticians or experts, then you neither sort of come up with the right decision, but nor do you build up enough public support for something. And so it's been interesting to watch on the one hand, the reaction to Thomas vehicles in San Francisco, where, I mean, there are lots of people who don't like it and who have good reasons not to like it, some of whom have commercial reasons not to like it. But at the same time, and they've been able to complain as bad things happen, but at the same time, you saw the massive investment in trying to get it to work. And then mm -hmm. when it did work, it actually worked. That is actually the right analogy for thinking about a lot of these AI things, right? So Chuck Schumer, who's a very important politician in the United States, put together a bunch of AI experts to talk about, you know, how to think about AI. And I kind of thought, oh no, don't do that. That's the wrong thing. The right thing is make sure you have arm's length distance and make sure you scold them when they do bad things and you give them fines, but you know, you have transparency. That's the part around the AI ethics regulation thing, which I sort of feel like is the right angle. And then as far as what I'm excited about, there was a point last summer, you know, summer 2022, when it felt like people who had access to GPT-4 came back transfigured, you know, sort of like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, where they sort of suddenly felt like they'd seen something new and they'd understood what was possible. And the interesting thing to me right now about all of that is that LLMs should not work. I mean, I think most CS people probably thought it wasn't going to work and don't really get it. Some of the smartest deepest thinkers around data, you know, have really legitimate criticisms of them and yet they work, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, there's, I feel like every time we talk about this, you have to acknowledge like there are all these issues, there are all these problems and yet it works. Mm -hmm. And both understanding all the ways it doesn't work and just getting insight there, I think that's exciting. And then the other sort of funny part though is like they work in specific circumstances for in deep shocking ways and that's going to continue, right? And I feel like that piece is one of those once in every 20 years or once in every 50 years sort of thing, right? And so if you ask my grouchy technical friends, some of them would say, oh, this is as big of a deal as a web. And others would say, oh, no, this is like as big of a deal as like sort of, I don't know, the von Neumann architecture, right? As <laughs> deciding to separate data from instructions, right? Like, oh, this will change the way we think about computation. So who's right? I don't totally know, but I do think that, but it is definitely one of those things where it's between once every 20 years and once every 50 years sort of change. It's hard to underestimate what a big deal this is. And then you read something else about 
you know, someone spending lots and lots of money doing something or some amazing demo. And you think, oh, maybe now it's overhyped. <laughs> but I still don't think so. I still don't think so. I still think like if you're to say, if you were a kid, what should you be thinking about? You should be thinking about, you should be building intuition around how these things work and don't work. And then if you're an old person and you could choose between watching Netflix or paying $20 for GPT-4, you should pay $20 a month for GPT-4 rather than Netflix, right? Because, it, you know, like it'll be transformational and interesting enough that it's worth paying attention to. Just to tie both of those pieces together for any of the large language model examples, what would you think is sort of the James Cham approach to ethics around this would be not pulling a bunch of experts in a room and having a conversation and doing a report, but rather creating a framework or creating some guardrails so that people could play and develop? Mm -hmm. What's the right approach with something that is so transformational? One of the dangers is all the bugs get hidden because the bugs are really valuable because the bugs, you know, all the ways that they're wrong or misinform or do something like that, they're super valuable because it means you can make it better, but actually they should be public goods. In the same way that you saw a car crash and someone yeah. had to report that, you should see when things go wrong. That's we got to see your bugs. You got to see your bugs, right? Because I think like that's good for everyone, but also builds public confidence. confidence, right? That's one part. But the other part I think is like one of the dangers of anthropomorphizing AI is it some ways ends up becoming a sin magnet that you can blame it for things, right? And I think that that's going to be a real yeah. issue. I mean, you see that already where some executive at some big company creates some system that like systematically treats someone badly or whatever, right? You know, some class of people badly. And then they say, oh, no, no, it wasn't me. It was the model. The model did it, right? Of course. But if you benefit, you should be responsible. Mm. And I think that sort of clear tie between benefit and responsibility, I think like in some ways that's the far harder, bigger fight. We can have the theoretical fight around capitalism, which I think is like interesting and important. But if we do that, it's really gonna be just to distract people from like sort of the short-term real issues of, okay, if this thing does something bad, who's to blame? Who's gonna get fined, right? All those sorts of things, that's the thing the public should worry about right now. And just to bring back to the, car analogy a little bit. You can look up online, every manufacturer defect, they are legally obligated to let you know that, hey, by the way, mm -hmm. these airbags aren't great on the passenger side, take it into your dealer and get that yeah. fixed. Having that sort of regulation around models of, hey, this is a vehicle that That's I'm right. using in my systems, in my work to get me from point A to point B. I'm using a model that I'm trusting, let's say, James's company has sold me this model. And there could be a universal issue that this model is experiencing across the thousands of clients that James serves. Sure. That seems like a sensible place to go, but is that in any way demotivating for our technical folks to oh, build? Yeah. That's why that's a real fight because I think there are like a bunch of commercial interests, but also like, you know, legitimate commercial interests that would say, no, 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 don't make me do it exactly this way. And there'll be nuances around it. But I think if you oriented the conversation around that, then I'm fairly confident we'll end up in a world both where AI has more public support and insight and less likely the cars cause clear harms. Because I think otherwise you end up, you know, having, again, important big discussions that will not get resolved. Like I guarantee you that the AI discussion is not going to resolve questions around the nature of capitalism. That's going to come in other <laughs> ways, right? Yeah. So six years ago, you wrote a blog post that I want to ask you about. It's called, We're Waiting for the Peter Drucker of Machine uh -huh. Intelligence. Uh -huh. And you said, here's the next 
big one, how leaders lead companies. The old way was leader as a genius, where a company's job is to find a solution to a problem and a leader decides on those solutions, mostly other people doing the work, and introduces a process to solve the problem reliably. The way evolved to empower people at the edge to propose their own solutions. And that's sort of how Facebook or Meta, for example, is run versus how Ford was run. Six years after this blog post, James, <laughs> what have you seen in the evolution of the way leaders lead companies? Not much. It turns out that like human beings have been leading tribes for a long, long time, <laughs> right? In that like a nice computer doesn't really change some of the nature of status and respect and legitimacy all that much, right? It turns out still like the grouchy person who looks like they know what they're doing, people assume know what they're doing, you know, like, <laughs> like that's, I mean, for better or worse. So that's one part. The other part is that it does remain true that leaders of big organizations are not yet technically competent enough, that they should be process-based people or they should be computational people, right? They should think in those terms, but it's got to get to the point where like those sorts of things are so well assumed that like everyone, my current view is like, you know, there'll be a few people like that, but in general, what we'll have to do is we'll have to improve you know, general education to the point till the point that like, you know, the great lawyers know enough about programming to have intuition. So that's one part. That's a pessimistic part. The optimistic part is that you look at some of the organizations on the leading edge and you see why they work faster and better. It ends up being some of it is like sort of like the clear process. Some of it is like clear automation. Some of it is out of that conversation. I met this guy, Steven Spears, the guy who figured out how to think about the Toyota production system. And so he's the guy who did the studies to say, oh, all these words are in Japanese. And so you think they're mystical? I'll tell you what this actually means, right? Part of what it actually means, though, was having people on the edge of the process be able to create their own tools, right? Mm -hmm. And to like modify their parts of the process in order to get something to work. And the LLMs, and they're very good at making small tools, right? And so that kind of world, I do think we're a little bit closer to. And so I'm hopeful a little bit on that side. And then I'm also hopeful that you know, sort of the leader's ability to project themselves throughout an organization, that's changing. They're now able to reach parts of the organization in different ways. The thing that I thought I'd be more hopeful on, but I just haven't seen enough evidence, is the leader's ability to then understand. Like, leaders now can project to lots of people, right? But The one to like, many. Yeah, but the many to the one, or like that ability to like report back, to show the anomalies, all that sort of stuff, that piece remains an open problem. And then the last thing on the organization thing is there's this guy who I really like, Henry Farrell, who's a professor at Hopkins, who is one of a number of folks who think about LLMs as examples of automated collective intelligence in some ways that, you know, there's this idea that organizations actually are technology, right? That actually how we, you know, and thinking in those terms there's lots of lessons and ways that the LLMs are actually quite good at processing collective intelligence. And so we'll see. I'm still hopeful. So just to tie this all back to, we started talking about your passion for journalism. We started with you listening to radio and imagining this world that existed beyond what was right in front of you as a mm -hmm. kid. And throughout that, pulling threads of storytelling throughout your career and understanding the importance of storytelling, we're now in a stage where shared language, you mentioned leaders that are technically competent and have the language to be able to navigate a technical conversation mm -hmm. or 
LLMs, the way that language is influencing us and we're influencing it. So in a world where we could have more technically competent leaders or technically conversational leaders, how has storytelling changed? Hmm. And are we still able to connect with each other through stories? Has it been compromised or has it been improved in any way? I think the power of the collective story that really scales used to be limited to great religions or maybe great nation states. And I think we're now at a time where those great stories can spread in, you know, sort of fundamentally different ways. So I, I think there's certainly more variety now. And then out of that great variety will come some coalescing of stories. And so the archetypes of our time, we'll figure that out 200 years from now. <laughs> and then will those archetypes be smarter or better than the ones from 200 years ago? I feel like you look at something someone did in 1840 and you're like, wow, they're so dumb. <laughs> How can we be so stupid? And, and I guarantee you, if we don't blow ourselves up in whatever, 20. 240, they'll look back at the decisions we made and they're like, wow, how can they be so dumb? You know, <laughs> what are they thinking? James, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. This is going to make for a very, very special episode. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. So we're in 2023. Oh, gosh, I hope. <laughs> the last we checked. And it's so awesome. When we got a chance to chat with James, he was talking about his passion for public radio. Public radio now is public radio podcasting. Mm -hmm. Right? The evolution of the medium, which I thought was really nice. Okay, so some stats on that. Back in 2006, only 22% of adults in the United States were aware of podcasting. By 2022, that figure has risen to 79%, with about 26% of people having listened to a podcast in the last week. Interestingly enough, radio trends have remained fairly consistent throughout the years. So about 82% of Americans 12 or older have listened to terrestrial radio in a given week. Wow. What did you guys think of the chat? I don't know if I've ever met anyone who loved coding that much. <laughs> <laughs> but I found really interesting from everything he said, he related it back to people, like the people he was surrounded with, the ideas that came as a result of the people that he was surrounded with and how they inspired him. So it was just a... A really interesting perspective to hear. I want to ask you, Sonia, he said he said that he's noticed the ability to focus and think deeply and how that specific ability is really cultivated with athletes. Did you have any specific comments on that? Yeah, yeah. I think the point he was making really resonated on practicing and the importance of getting it wrong in practice and then continuing to repeat and repeat and repeat until you've practiced it all so that you're just ready to perform. Practices can be grueling, you know, because yeah. it everything is loose, not everything is pulled together. And also you're getting, 
depending on if you're in a team sport or individual, let's just say you're a team sport. Let's just say it's rugby as an example. Um, you know, everyone's had a different type of day. You're meeting at, you know, six or 7 PM on a weekday. Some folks really want to be there and they're ready to practice. They've been thinking about it all day. Some folks are sort of sauntering in and just want to get a run around, you know, get the steps in. And, and so when you're on a game day, the focus is clear. The focus is we're here to win the game. We know the rules or the laws. We're ready to win. Let's all figure out how to do that now. But I think the best performing teams and athletes you see on game day, they're so relaxed because they've practiced it all and they're, they're going in, they know what they're doing. So yeah, all we can, you know, okay. all to come back to say that it's hard to keep practicing something because at the beginning you're really bad at it, but being able to continue to have the grit to keep going and do the 10,000 hours that is a huge difference maker. And it's sometimes I think we, we tell the stories of true exceptionalism in, wow, this was just a gift. When this person was born, they just knew how to shoot a three point basket <laughs> in reality. Yes. Maybe they, they had a propensity to be athletic, but also they really did the work they put in the time and continually put in the time, um, even after they reached the first height. I think we mentioned Steph Curry. Yeah, It doesn't get easier to be Steph Curry every year. You have to continue to have the discipline to practice and practice and practice. So anyway, your, your thoughts, guys. Yeah, it reminds me of something that a teacher told me when I was younger. So this teacher was a phys ed teacher, but also I think just like taught my general grade as well. And I wasn't the most athletic kid, so I never really related to sports metaphors for a very long time <laughs> until I met you, Sonia. <laughs> but he basically said that like any kind of preparation, especially he was mostly referring to studying athletes study or train months in advance and they go really hard. But guess what an athlete does the night of a competition? They're sleeping. They're not cramming. And I just remember thinking like, oh, but it's just so hard to plan that out. <laughs> <laughs> Takes so much thinking to plan. <laughs> but as I got older, yeah, just completely correct of if you want to really put the work in, you have to do it very deliberately in advance, rigorously, and then know when to rest. Yes. I took a rest there. <laughs> 